Intraventricular hemorrhage, or IVH, is a major neurological complication of prematurity. Pathogenesis of intraventricular hemorrhage is attributed to the intrinsic fragility of the germinal matrix vasculature and to fluctuations in cerebral blood flow. The germinal matrix exhibits rapid angiogenesis, orchestrating formation of immature vessels, and it's these vessels that are susceptible to birth injury. In this podcast, we're going to cover what is the most likely cause of intraventricular hemorrhage, the different grades of IVH, and which antenatal therapy is actually effective. Now, two should come to mind, glucocorticoid exposure and magnesium sulfate. But you may be surprised to find that only one of those two is actually evidence-based. Is it glucocorticoids or mag sulfate? Well, let's cover that in this podcast now. There are actually four major types of intracranial hemorrhage, which may affect the neonate. Now, remember, here we're talking about different kinds of head bleeds in the neonate, not the four different types of grade of intraventricular hemorrhage, which we'll discuss in just a moment. But in general, there are four major types of intracranial hemorrhage that can affect the neonate. These include subdural hemorrhage, primary subarachnoid hemorrhage, intracerebellar hemorrhage, and intraventricular hemorrhage. In the ICU for pediatrics, or the neonatal ICU, the most common of the four and the most important for preterm infants is intraventricular hemorrhage. Once again, IVH is the most common of the four and the most important, the most linked to adverse outcomes, especially in severe premature infants. In the U.S., about 12,000 premature infants develop intraventricular hemorrhage every year. The incidence of moderate to severe IVH has actually remained stationary during the last two decades. IVH is a major problem in premature infants, especially because the more severe types of IVH are linked to neurological sequelae. About 50 to 75% of preterm survivors with intraventricular hemorrhage will develop cerebral palsy, mental retardation or learning disabilities, and or hydrocephalus. Approximately a quarter of non-disabled survivors develop psychiatric disorders as well and problems with executive function. So remember, this isn't just neurodevelopmental, but severe grades of IVH have also been linked to psychiatric conditions in the future. IVH typically initiates in the periventricular germinal matrix. This brain region is known to developmental neurobiologists as a ganglionic eminence. The germinal matrix consists of neuronal and glial precursor cells and is most prominent on the head of the caudate nucleus. The subependymal germinal matrix is highly vascular and is selectively vulnerable to hemorrhage. Now, after 24 gestational weeks, the thickness of the germinal matrix decreases and it almost entirely disappears by 36 to 37 gestational weeks. 
When hemorrhage in the germinal matrix is substantial, the underlying ependymal breaks down and the germinal matrix hemorrhage progresses to true intraventricular hemorrhage as blood fills the lateral ventricle and distends. Now remember that the pathogenesis of IVH is multifactorial and is kind of complex, but it can be broken down into three main categories. All right, podcast family, here are the three items that are involved in the pathogenesis of germinal matrix bleeds. The first is the internal inherent fragility of the germinal matrix vasculature. Second are fluctuations in cerebral blood flow. And third are platelet or coagulation disorders. So remember, first is the intrinsic vasculature that's fragile. Second, fluctuations in blood flow. And then third is coagulation disorders or effects. All right, now that we've covered the pathogenesis, let's cover grading in brief detail. Now, there's two main criteria that are used, the papill criteria or the Volpe criteria. Most use the papill criteria. That's P-I-P-I-L-E. This is divided into four different grades. Grade 1, which is the most benign, is hemorrhage limited to the germinal matrix area, and it may be unilateral or bilateral. Grade 2 is blood noted within the ventricular system, but the ventricles are not distended. Grade 3 is blood in the ventricles with distension or dilation of the ventricles, and grade 4 is intraventricular hemorrhage with parenchymal extension. Well, as always, nothing is perfect, and there's critics that are quite valid in their points against this grading scheme. A problem with this grading system that needs acknowledgement is that objective determination of ventricular dilation is difficult. Determination of the extent of hemorrhage is crucial, though, since most follow-up studies have shown that the probability of neurological morbidity is high for the most extensive types of hemorrhage, which is grade 3, and four. In contrast, it appears that the presence of a grade one or grade two intraventricular hemorrhage does not measurably increase the chance of neurological morbidity. So that's very good news. Lesions which occur in the periventricular white matter occur in three to ten percent of infants with birth weights less than 1500 grams, and these are frequently bilateral. These are felt to be ischemic in origin and can evolve into cystic lesions of the periventricular white matter known as periventricular leukomalacia. This again is tied to severe forms of IVH, specifically grades 3 and 4. Similarly, there's a controversy as to what is the best way to identify intracranial hemorrhage in the neonate. Is it ultrasound or is it MRI? Now, obviously, the most cost-effective and the easiest is bedside ultrasound, but some critics have raised concerns about the sensitivity of ultrasound, and that's even included the American College of OBGYN. Now, in general, despite these differences in opinion, whether it's the ultrasound or MRI, there are some universal standards in terms of checking for intracranial hemorrhage. In general, all babies that are born at extreme prematurity, defined as less than 32 weeks or less than or equal to 1,500 grams, should have a head ultrasound. Typically, it's first performed on day 5 through 7, with the second performed around day 28, day of life. Now, if intraventricular hemorrhage is detected on ultrasound, then weekly scans should be performed to evaluate progression or cystic change. 
the timing of this head ultrasound schedule takes into account that most IVHs occur in the first week of life. However, the presence of late intraventricular hemorrhage does occur and necessitates an ultrasound examination at that month of life. Now that we've covered the pathophysiology, the grades, and the ways of detection, let's get into the focus of the podcast, which applies to OBGYNs. What are the pharmacological ways that we have to try to prevent IVH? Remember, it's not so much that we're trying to prevent IVH per se, but we're trying to prevent IVH and its sequelae that follow. That's really the catch. So since neurological and psychiatric morbidity is linked to severe IVHs, what can we do to prevent IVH in the first place? Well, two main therapies come to mind, antenatal glucocorticoids and magnesium sulfate. Which one actually seems to work based on the evidence? Let's get into that now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For premature infants, there's two standard of care therapies that are used. Of course, antenatal corticosteroids, either betamethasone or dexamethasone. Remember that since the ALPS trial, the traditional boundaries of 24 to 34 weeks for steroid administration have been changed. It's now been brought down to 23 weeks of gestation. And though controversial, it's been extended in the late preterm period up to 36 weeks and 6 days. The other therapy, of course, is intravenous magnesium sulfate, which is endorsed by the college and SMFM for deliveries that are deemed eminent at or below 32 weeks of gestation. And the main purpose of this is for this very topic, for neuroprotection. Let's cover glucocorticoids first. We all know that glucocorticoids reduces respiratory morbidity in preterm infants, but don't forget that glucocorticoids also has protective effects on the germinal matrix. Since IVH, intraventricular hemorrhage, is primarily attributed to increased vascular fragility and disturbances in cerebral blood flow, strategies directed to strengthening the germinal matrix vasculature and stabilizing cerebral blood flow are key. The germinal matrix has a subset of vessels that are angiogenic, immature, and lack protective cells, and they thrive because of high levels of VEGF and angiopoietin-2. These blood vessels exhibit high fragility and propensity to bleed, so anything that can reduce their propensity to bleed is therefore helpful. Glucocorticoids stabilize the germinal matrix actually by downregulating VEGF, which remember helps destabilize the germinal matrix and causes increased bleeding. In the U.S., preterm birth is about 12.5%, and about 75% of women in premature labor with gestational ages less than 34 weeks are thankfully treated with either betamethasone or dexamethasone. A number of studies confirm that prenatal glucocorticoids reduce the severity and the incidence of IVH. The beneficial effect of prenatal glucocorticoids is attributed to that stabilization of the microvasculature of the germinal matrix and alleviation of disturbances in cerebral blood flow. 
prenatal glucocorticoids suppress angiogenesis and stabilizes the microvasculature, making them less fragile and less susceptible to bleeding. So, glucocorticoid exposures stabilizes that bed and leads to overall decreased incidence of germinal matrix bleed. Moreover, glucocorticoids reduce the incidence and severity of respiratory distress syndrome, which in and of itself minimizes fluctuations in cerebral blood flow. So glucocorticoids have a dual role, a direct stabilization of the germinal matrix, but also an indirect role, and that's by reducing the incidence and severity of respiratory distress. The optimal effect of prenatal glucocorticoids has been observed after the complete course of two doses of betamethasone or four doses of dexamethasone when administered within a week of delivery of the premature infant. However, benefits have also been noted with incomplete courses of glucocorticoids. Comparison of the two glucocorticoids, betamethasone and dexamethasone, have not conclusively shown superiority of one over the other, so clinicians honestly should just use whatever is available. Beta-methasone exposed infants exhibit less respiratory distress syndrome, but tend to have more IVH compared to prenatal dexamethasone treated infants. But there's also been some concern that prenatal dex might increase the incidence of periventricular leukomalacia. You see, nothing's free in this life. However, a subsequent study on a larger population clearly showed that there is actually no difference in the incidence of cystic periventricular leukomalacia between DEX and beta-methasone-exposed infants, so that's good news. This study also noted that both glucocorticoids are equally efficacious in preventing severe IVH. However, there is a trend towards better efficacy for dexamethasone compared to beta-methasone. Importantly, antenatal beta-methasone is associated with a reduced risk for neonatal death compared with DEX, and that's what most experts agree on, and that's why celestone or beta-methasone is favored because of this reduced risk of neonatal death compared to dexamethasone. Nonetheless, there's really not a clear benefit of one over the other because each trial has its pros and cons in their study design. So we're back to please use whatever is available at your institution, although betamethasone does have that survival benefit over DEX. Okay, that brings us to a wrap for steroids. So great for the lungs and seems to be great for the germinal matrix as well through both direct and indirect effects. But what about MAG? MAG sulfate is given for neuroprotection in infants born at less than 32 weeks. Now, even though its mechanism of action is not clear, is that really evidence-based? Now, even though it's endorsed by ACOG and SMFM, the data is kind of surprising. Let's do that next. Since the 80s, medical regimens have been introduced to try to reduce the incidence of neonatal IVH, but some with not very clear success. Phenobarbital and vitamin K are important to mention here, as these medications attracted the attention of investigators in the late 80s and early 90s. Initial studies showed some protective effect of phenobarbital for IVH development. However, subsequent clinical trials failed to confirm the protective effect of phenobarbital in preventing IVH. Similarly, maternal treatment of vitamin K or even administration of high doses of vitamin K to the neonate did not demonstrate any benefit either. In this category, shockingly, is actually magnesium sulfate, which in most recent clinical trials does not seem to have a direct effect on prevention of IVH. 
Magnesium sulfate has a long history of use in obstetrics, from preeclampsia and eclampsia treatment to initially as a tocolytic. But there is data, without a doubt, that magnesium sulfate also has a role as a neuroprotective agent, although its exact mechanism remains unclear. It does not seem to be primarily involved with stabilization of the germinal matrix, although early studies did suggest that. It seems that its main neuroprotective effect is in regulation or stabilization of cerebral blood flow. One widely cited theory for the possible neuroprotective effect of mag sulfate is that by blocking calcium processes and activating as a vasodilator, it may inhibit or delay ischemic cell death during and after cerebral ischemic events. There is also evidence that mag sulfate decreases the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines and free radicals during hypoxic ischemic reperfusion. So once again, its protection may not be as a physical protector of the germinal matrix, but more circulatory and biochemical. Now, this theory is supported by several recent papers that have demonstrated a suppression of cord blood cytokine production with mag sulfate use. In 2014, a randomized controlled trial in 72 women showed increased levels of brain-derived neurotrophic factor in core blood of preterm babies, defined as being born less than 34 weeks in that study, where mag sulfate had been given antenatally compared with placebo. Now, what's the big deal about this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF? Well, BDNF is a neurotrophin shown to be protective against neuronal hypoxic ischemic brain injury in vivo. All right, guys, I know I framed this podcast to almost set up mag sulfate to seem like a flop, but it isn't. Mag sulfate does have a neuroprotective effect, especially on infants born at less than 32 weeks, and the effect is greatest the younger the child is. But remember that the topic of this podcast is the specific effect of these meds on intraventricular hemorrhage, once thought to be the principal mechanism of action for mag sulfate for neuroprotection, which was prevention of IVH, it's likely that that's not its main function. Its main function is most likely the stabilization of that cerebral blood flow and its biochemical properties to prevent neuronal cell injury. We do need to mention one important concept here as it relates to intraventricular hemorrhage, and that's delayed cord clamping. Now remember that ACOG and SMFM and even the American Academy of Pediatrics agree that at least 30 seconds to 60 seconds of delayed umbilical cord clamping has value not only for premature infants, but for term infants as well. And one of the known benefits of delayed cord clamping is reduction in the incidence of intraventricular bleed. But as you know, it's never that easy in medicine, and there's a flip side to everything. So in 2019, the NIH stopped, prematurely halted a study due to safety concerns regarding the common practice of umbilical cord milking, especially in preterm infants, because of the ironic increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage when that practice is done in premature children.
In that study, appearing in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers enrolled women less than 32 weeks of pregnancy who were at risk for preterm birth. When the women went into early labor, their infants were assigned at random to umbilical cord milking or delayed umbilical cord clamping for 60 seconds. For safety reasons, obstetricians could opt out of either procedure and immediately clamp the cord at their discretion. Researchers plan to enroll 1,500 infants, with 750 assigned at random to each group. But before the study was halted, 474 infants were randomized, with 236 assigned to cord milking and 238 assigned to delayed clamping. After extremely preterm infants at 23 to 27 weeks gestation in the cord milking group were found to have more hemorrhages inside the ventricles compared to the earliest preterm infants in the delayed clamping group, the study was stopped before enough infants could be enrolled to allow for a statistically valid analysis. The study authors classified the results into a single combined outcome, death or severe intraventricular hemorrhage. Among the cord milking group, 12% died or developed severe intraventricular hemorrhage compared to 8% in the delayed clamping group, a difference that was not statistically significant. When the authors considered only the death rate, it also did not differ significantly between the two groups, with 7% in the cord milking group compared to 8% in the delayed clamping group. However, the rate of severe IVH was significantly higher in the cord milking group at 8% compared to 3% in the delayed clamping group. Among those in the cord milking group, all 20 with intraventricular hemorrhage were the youngest preterm infants born between 23 and 27 weeks of pregnancy, compared to the five of the eight infants in the delayed clamping group. Among infants born at 28 to 32 weeks, no intraventricular hemorrhage occurred in the cord milking group, and three cases occurred in the delayed clamping group, a rate that did not differ significantly. So what's the take-home message? Delayed cord clamping is beneficial for preterm and term infants in terms of reduction in necrotizing enterocolitis, decrease in intraventricular hemorrhage, and improve neurodevelopmental outcomes. However, for extreme premature infants, cord milking can actually cause harmful effects on the germinal matrix and can set up the child to intraventricular bleed. All right, everyone, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered intraventricular hemorrhage, or IVH, from its pathogenesis to its detection and to hopefully some OB antenatal management tools that can reduce its occurrence. There's no question that the most standard, the most agreed upon pharmacological treatment to try to reduce IVH is prenatal glucocorticoids. That's the way to go. And magnesium sulfate, while still definitely possessing neuroprotective effects in extreme premature infants, seems to have a different mechanism of action. Nonetheless, the combination of magnesium sulfate and antenatal or prenatal glucocorticoids definitely is the way to go to try to prevent this most devastating and most common complication of prematurity. Guys, we're thankful that you're with us. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.